this episode of 92i Talks, best-selling writers Michael Gross and William D. Cohan, who was also a former Wall Street investment banker, discuss the power brokers, publishers, geniuses, and visionaries who made New York City the center of the fashion and business world. The conversation was recorded on June 12, 2017, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. <laughs> okay, thank you, Mr. Agam. That was very kind thank of you. you. I hope we can deliver on all the promise that he made uh, in his introduction. But since he did mention um, uh, the Gay Talese quotation about you, the premier chronicler of the rich, could you please tell us how that came about? Because uh, you're not like uh, Truman Capote. You were not to the manner born. You're the child of a journalist and the brother of a journalist, and so you have journalism in your DNA and your veins that does not make you necessarily the premier chronicler of the rich. So how did you become the premier chronicler well, of well, the rich? First of all, let me fact check that. What he said was one of the. <laughs> so I, I have it as the. I don't want to claim, I don't want to claim all that territory. Um, how did it happen? Uh, well, I, I grew up very middle class on Long Island. Um, to me, when I was a kid... We won't hold that against you, the, but the, keep... When I was a kid, the people who were rich were the people with in-ground swimming pools. <laughs> that meant you were rich if you had an in-ground swimming pool. Um, and, like, I knew the difference because my father explained to me that the people with Cadillacs weren't rich. They just wasted their money um, because we drove Chevrolets. Um, I, I probably didn't even encounter truly rich people until I was in college, but I was in college in the 70s when anyone who was rich hid their light under a, you know, they hid that, but they, they were clearly rich people in college. And, and you went to Vassar? I went to Vassar. I was in the first class of There must have been rich people at Vassar. Um, the experience was so rich I didn't notice. Um, <laughs> but, but round about junior year at Vassar, I did have a huge crush on a girl who I would subsequently learn was very distantly a standard oil heiress, and I, um, <clears throat> I ate my first raspberry in her mother's house. I'd never had raspberries before. And I said, ooh, raspberries, this is rich. And, and they lived in the Majestic, and I saw big apartments, and then I came to New York and I wrote about rock and roll music. I mean, my, my father was a sports writer, right. so, so I suppose I was... your sister, too. My sister, well, my sister started a sports writer and then... Evolved. Evolved. Right. Um, and so I started writing about, I guess, the, the equivalent for my generation of what sports stars were for my father's generation, so I started writing about rock stars. And I spent 10 years doing that. And, and again, I suppose I was hanging around rich people. We were flying in private planes and um, riding around in limousines and taking very expensive drugs and um, um, going to the best hotels, et cetera, et cetera. But again, it was more about being where the culture was. Um, and from rock and roll, I, my, my focus moved to fashion but it did that through models, so there was a connection because rock stars all had model girlfriends. And so when you were hanging around rock stars, another thing that made the experience rich was you got to hang around with fashion models. And so I, I, I wrote a series of mystery novels about where the detective was a fashion model, 
and this was the kind of messed up feminism that I learned at Vassar, um, was that the, the, the basic conceit of the books was that beautiful women attracted unwanted attention from men, and our detective character, whose name was Temple Kent, was going to avenge all the disgusting things that men did to women. Uh, she hadn't met Donald Trump. Um, and, um, so I wrote, I co-wrote those with a friend of mine from Vassar, my best friend from Vassar, who was, who might have been rich, I'm not sure, um, but, but he grew up on the main line outside of Philadelphia, and, you know, he, he, he was certainly grew up better off than I did, um, but he too was a rock and roll person and an editor and wanted to get out of rock and roll. And we wrote these books together. He was an English major, I was a history major. So I'm getting to, so I was in charge of research and he was in charge of writing. And so in order to do the research onto modeling, I had to throw myself into the fashion world. And so after three mystery novels, I started writing about fashion and suddenly I found myself in a very different world. But fashion, just like rock and roll, was at that moment kind of the thing that was going on in the culture. And um, what was great about it was that in writing about fashion, because I didn't, I brought a kind of rock and roll attitude to writing about fashion, um, so I, I became very important very quickly. And within like two years, I got a job at the local community newspaper. Um, and as the number two fashion writer for the New York Times, I got to sit in the front row at fashion shows. So sitting on my left would be the Duchess of Kelka shows, and sitting on my right would be, you know, the, the, the private equity princess. And I would go to all these parties with rich people. So I did fashion for 10 years, and um, then I wanted to write a book. I wrote a book about Ralph Lauren, and when I finished the book about Ralph Lauren, I thought to myself, well, gee, you've written a book about a fake aristocrat. Now, well, and which wasn't even true because he was a Jewish aristocrat, but in his mind, he was a fake aristocrat. Um, <clears throat> wouldn't it be interesting to write a book about real American aristocrats? Um, and I came up with the idea of writing a book about a family from the Mayflower to the present. And I could not sell that book. And um, my publisher at the time said to me, we don't mind the idea of social history told through a microcosm, find a different microcosm. And the next day, literally, I was going down Fifth Avenue in a taxi, looking out the window, going by building after building after building, and I suddenly realized that I was driving past 4 East 67th Street, where Marty Raines had just sold an apartment to Paul Allen of Microsoft. And um, the other thing that my publisher had said to me was, when you choose the other microcosm, make sure there are Jews in it, because Jews buy books. <laughs> and um, so I, you know, I have this whole thought, oh, the Hursts live here, this one lives here, that one lives here, and Marty Raines just sold this apartment to Paul Allen, so I can do her one better. Not only will I give her Jews, I will give her computer geeks. And I wrote a book called 740 Park, not because I wanted to write about real estate, but because I wanted to write about the American aristocracy. And suddenly, I found myself talking to the grandchildren of rich people, the children of rich people, um, lots of rich people, and it just appeared to me to be very wealthy subject matter. Complete with a double entendre. Uh, I mean, do, do you, well, I, I, I want to ask you do, you, do you like writing about rich people? But 
before I do that, so you can think about that. I mean, the idea of uh, writing about a building uh, was kind of uh, uh, revolutionary. Uh, uh, writing about a famous uh, apartment building uh, and therefore let you explore all the people who live there. I really uh, uh, sort of changed the way we think about real estate. I think even though you said you didn't want to write about real estate, then you did it again with 15th Central Park uh, West. What, what's, why do you think that writing about you know, like famous buildings where really rich people live is a good way to uh, explore you know, what rich people are about and you know, it obviously gives you a narrative way to, to do that. Well, I didn't really think it through in that way. Um, I, at Vassar, I was a history major, and I loved history, and I wanted to find a way, you know, I had written this book about fashion models called Model, and it was a New York Times bestseller, and um, in one sense, writing a bestseller can ruin your life because they let you do whatever you want next. And so I wrote a history book, actually, next. It was a history of the baby boom generation, and it was a miserable failure. And that's why I had to retreat to writing another book about fashion, which is how I wrote the book about Ralph Lauren. And that got good enough reviews that now I was able to do what I wanted again, and I wanted to write about rich people, because I thought, you know, again, it, it, I think it's a tendency to follow the zeitgeist. So I went from... You know, Mickey Mantle when I was seven years old, to Led Zeppelin when I was 20 years old, to Karl Lagerfeld and Yves Saint Laurent when I was 30 years old. And now it's, where are we? We're in, we're in the late 90s. And what's going on in America is there's this huge boom. And the single most fascinating thing that was going on, particularly in New York, was the beginning of this extraordinary accumulation of wealth that came to rival the Industrial Revolution. And, and I just thought it was, it was great subject matter. And then I started talking to these people, and I discovered how incredibly interesting they are because it's all, nothing is stable. You know, the, the, the old wasps who first lived in those buildings on Park Avenue, half of them have been, three quarters of them have been forgotten. And when I would get one of their grandkids on the phone, it would be like, really, you want to write about my grandmother? I have so many stories to tell you. And, and they were so colorful, and they were so shameless, and they were, they were so interesting, and there was no, you know, they didn't have to hide because it was a different world. And they lived in these fortresses, you know, they lived in fortresses in a neighborhood that was itself a fortress, on an island that was itself a fortress, in a country that was a fortress of wealth. And, and... I just, I kind of fell in love with them. And, and I fell in love with the ones who had been at the top and were no longer there, even more than I did with the ones who were at the top then. But that was mostly because the people who lived at 740 Park now mostly wouldn't talk to me. So I didn't get to like or dislike them very much. I had to write about them at a remove. And since I had the experience of 10 years of writing for New York Magazine, where I was encouraged, not, not, not really asked to, but when I showed a knack for, really, you don't want me to write about you? Well, guess what? I'm going to write about you anyway. Um, and I had that knack, and I wasn't afraid of doing that. And 
then I discovered that people like Steve Schwartzman, who wouldn't talk to me, were fascinating people. And their stories were, you know, where this guy came from. He married the first wife, which is where the first money came from. Her father, I, I think they met at Wharton, and her father... Harvard Business School. Was it Harvard Business School? Okay. Her father manufactured the um, screen panels that went on the doors and windows of trailers. And that's where Steve Schwartzman got, you know, little details like that. You, you get riveted. You, get, you, you become interested in someone's life. And but they but were, do you like these people? I mean, you have to, you know, when you write a book uh, of this, these magnitudes, you, you know, it takes several years. You have to literally live with these people, not, you know, actually, but metaphorically. And do you I mean, so do you like, I mean, I always say, you know, I have to be very careful before I choose a topic because I'm not sure I want to live quote unquote with these people. Well, it, it's, case, I mean, it's case by case. I mean, but you've now done it with 740 Park and with 15 Central Park West. So, I mean, what you must well, somehow I mean, enjoy it or enjoy the idea of writing about these people in order to tweak them in some way. But, but the, the good that, well, no, but the funny thing is that you discover people that you really admire in the process as well. So, you know, there, there are people Why, that, because they talk to you or...? No, because they're fascinating and they're interesting. I mean, you know, at 15 Central Park West, I discovered that there was this cohort of Russians in the building. And I'm not talking about Dmitry Rebelov Lev, he of the $88 million penthouse. I'm bought talking about... Bought from Sandy Weil. <clears throat> who bought it, bought it from Sandy Weil. And, but I'm talking about the other Russians in the building, like the guy who invented the DVD and the guy who owns a chain of dental clinics, and the guy who runs clinics in Maryland for um, underprivileged people. And these people came from Russia. They were mostly Jewish. They got out of the country through stealth and grit and good fortune, and they came to New York without two nickels to rub together, and they made millions of dollars, and they ended up at 740 Park, at 15 Central Park West. And I didn't know anything about those people when I set out to write that book. I just knew that there was this new, fin you know, 740 Park was a whole history of New York told through real estate. And people said to me when I finished, so what are you gonna do next? Are you gonna do, you know, the, the, the Jane Reitzman's building? Are you gonna do Agnelli's building? Are you gonna do River House? And it was like, I don't wanna be the apartment house guy. Um, and, and so I decided, well, wait a second. Now, you know, the publishing business wants you to repeat yourself. It's a horrible thing. But they want, you know, if you're Robert Ludlum, they want you to write the Born Identity and then the something else conundrum and then the something else paradox. And I didn't want to do that, but I still had to find a way to write a book that the publishing business could wrap their hands around. And so I said, I don't write books about apartment houses full of rich people. I write books about institutions of the American aristocracy. And I made a list. And on the list was everything from the New York Public Library. My editor wrapped himself in garlic and ran screaming from the room when I suggested that one. Um, um, St. James Episcopal, Temple Emmanuel. That was a good one. I was going to call it Houses of the Holy. Um, um, and down the list, and number seven was the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So that's how much intention I had to write a book about the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And my editor went, that's it, I'm writing a contract. 
and I, suddenly I was writing a book about the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I knew very little about it. I had read one book about the first director of the Met, whose name was Luigi Palma di Cesnola, who was a total fraud, a, an Italian adventurer, um, sold the Met, fake antiquities that he had allegedly dug up on Cyprus, but he'd actually like glued them together. Um, and I'd read Thomas Huffing's book. That's as much as I knew about the Metropolitan. And what I discovered was I found lives within the Metropolitan that were riveting. And, and the one that got me in a lot of trouble was <clears throat> I decided to tell the story through a series of personalities. Focus on signal personalities of each era. So the opening of the book was Di Chesnola. The second part was J.P. Morgan, who fascinated me. The third part was, um, no, I think like the fourth part was Robert Moses. Now everybody thinks of Robert Moses as this demon, this poor people hating demon who destroyed neighborhoods and built expressways without thought of the people who lived there and blah, 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 blah. But when he was involved as the ex officio trustee on the board of directors of the Metropolitan Museum, he was a populist, and he demanded that the rich people who thought they owned that museum throw open the doors and let the people of New York in. And I wouldn't have known that except that I stumbled on a trove of Robert Moses's papers. And I discovered this completely other Robert Moses that I didn't know about going. So that's what I mean. Then the, the, the final chapter, the, the current day, the choices were um, Sandra Whitney Payson, the owner of the Mets, who was a trustee of the Met, Brooke Astor, who was a trustee of the Met, um, or this mother-daughter tag team, Jane Engelhard and Annette De Laurenta. And um, they had literally, Jane had passed her board seat to her daughter. And again, I knew nothing about them. I'm, I'm reporting all three stories, Mrs. Payson, Mrs. Astor, and Mrs. Engelhardt and her daughter. And what I discovered was that fascinating as we all think Brooke Astor is, Jane Engelhardt was a thousand times more interesting. Um, and, and I don't wanna, I could do this for 20 minutes, so I don't wanna do that. So to sum it up, if, it was, if Edith Wharton had written Casablanca, it would have been the story of Jane Engelhardt and her daughter, Mrs. De Laurenta. As it happened, telling that story got me into a tremendous amount of trouble. Um, I went into it out of this passionate admiration for Jane Engelhardt, and I ended up pissing off her daughter so much that my name was made dirt on the Upper East Side for like 10 years. But, you know... Well, we intersected on that because yes. obviously they had a role in the Lazard story. Well, and, and, and I came to Bill because he had written this amazing book about Lazard, and Mrs. Engelhardt had been spirited out of Nazi Europe by Andre Meyer, who was the head of Lazard, and the person who had told Meyer's story best. Well, that's being kind. I think uh, there were other people who told it well too, but, uh, but the, the point though is that you, you got yourself into trouble on the Met book, you got yourself into trouble on the 15th Central Park. Oh, that, 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 that was West just that was, that was hardly trouble. That was just a little. Well, but you, uh, you, I, you would tell me stories of of what the people there were doing, the, the not so kindly non-Russian people. I mean, the Dan Loeb's of the world or whatever. Uh, <laughs> so the, the question is, though, I mean, you, you obviously are fearless, uh, and so you go into this and. 
how do you prepare yourself for this battle? So I, it's, it's more than you've, you've sort of painted it as, well, I'm just going and I'm curious about these people and they're so damn interesting. But in fact, they're also very powerful and they get angry at you and you have to deal with that too. Well, one of the most interesting things is, you know, you were talking about living with somebody in your head and in your home for a year. Years ago, Years. when I was at New York Magazine, the first cover story that I wrote that caused a sensation, and it probably made my career, was I was a huge admirer of this fashion designer named Calvin Klein. And I didn't admire him because of his clothes. I admired him because of his ads. I thought his ads were provocative and brilliant. They were, they were rock and roll on a page. And um, I, had, I had gotten to know Calvin when I worked at the community newspaper because, of course, you know, when you're the New York Times, you get taken out to dinner by Calvin Klein, um, and um, who tried to prove to my wife and I that he was straight by rubbing my wife's thigh under the table during dinner. Just a little aside. Um, Thank you for sharing. And, and, then, and, and I had actually arranged um, to write a cover story on Calvin Klein when a new fragrance he had released called Eternity was coming out. And two weeks before I was to start reporting that story, he went to Hazelden, um, supposedly for a Valium addiction. And his PR guy called up New York Magazine and said, sorry, we're not doing the story because now we're fighting off 60 Minutes in the Today Show and the New York Times. So, and he actually said the words to me, get in line. And my boss, this is where I became the guy who wrote the story when they wouldn't cooperate. My boss said, do it anyway. And I don't think it's fearless. I think it's stupid. <laughs> but I was like, oh, yeah, sure. And I went out and I reported Calvin Klein for two months. And I wrote a cover story about Calvin Klein that caused Calvin Klein's business partner, Barry Schwartz, to pull their advertising out of New York Magazine. My editor subsequently called it the most expensive cover story ever in New York Magazine. Five years, $5 million. But it was also the best-selling cover story in New York Magazine that year. It made my career. It made New York Magazine look fearless. And I was like, oh, gee, this is interesting. So cut to about six months later, I get a call from a publisher offering me some huge, astonishing amount of money to write a biography of Calvin Klein. And I really thought about it. And what I decided, because by that point I knew a lot about Calvin Klein, was I did not want that man in my life for the year or two years that it was going to take to write that book. And I wouldn't do it. So cut to now 15 years later, I'm sitting in a restaurant. Ralph Lauren comes. I go over to Ralph Lauren's table to say hello to him because we're friends, which is as friendly as a newspaper reporter and someone who's on his beat can be. And Ralph says, uh, you know, I've been meaning to call you. Would you write my biography? And you know, I didn't actually admire Ralph as much as I admired Calvin, but I wore Ralph's clothes because he's short. And you know, short designers cut clothes for short people. And um, so I was like, yeah, Ralph, OK, I'll do this on one condition. It's my book, not yours. Famous last words. He agrees. I sign the contract. I take the money. And he spends the next six months telling me what cannot be in the book. Um, and then I read in the New York Observer, now owned by, ready, number two, Jared Kushner, two, <laughs> that um, I read That's in the- That's derivative, but okay. okay. It's a stretch. <laughs> I read in the, in the New York Observer that Ralph Lauren is no longer cooperating with me. And my publisher said, oh, just do it anyway. And so that time it was not done out of hate. It was actually done out of admiration because by that point, I'd learned a lot about Ralph Lauren and I'd learned what made him 
such a neurotic bundle of genius, which was that he came from a line of rabbis in Eastern Europe dating back to the 16th century, some of the most important people in rabbinical history. There is actually a four-volume work that's about this big mm -hmm. that is simply the story of the descendants of Rabbi Yom Tov Heller, who was one of the, Rabbi Yom Tov Lippmann Heller. And um, Ralph Lauren came from that line. And I remembered when I, when, I, when I discovered this bit, being at the CFDA Awards in like 1987, when Ralph got the Lifetime Achievement Award for the first time. And his little old mother, Fredel, was up in the balcony. And Ralph is standing on stage with Audrey Hepburn. He's got his arm around Audrey Hepburn like he's never going to let her go. And he's waving the CFDA awards. And he goes, so mom, mom, and he's looking up. And he goes, so do you still want me to be? She wanted him to be a rabbi. He went to yeshiva. He wore the little hat and the, and the stuff and all of that. And he, he, he studied in Hebrew for years, you know, sitting in that class thinking, are there blonde girls in Westchester? Yeah. And, and he looks up to the balcony. He goes, so mom, do you still want me to be a... And there's this long pause. And he turned it into a Jewish joke. And he went, dentist? <laughs> you know, I didn't hate him. He hated me for the next 15 years because I wrote the book anyway. But it's, it's not hate. It's fascination. All right. Well, you didn't really answer the question because the, the, the question was, how do you deal with what's the inevitable blowback? But let me try to ask it a different way. Because I, you know, I get a lot of blowback, too, pretty much on everything I write. So, but but what, I mean, you, what was the difference between the reaction to writing 740 Park and, and writing whatever, 15 Central Park well, West? 740 Park, okay, mostly the blowback is amusing. Let me answer the original hmm. question. Mostly the blowback is amusing. Um, Steve Schwartzman. So Steve Schwartzman refused to give me an interview. He actually treated me with a certain amount of contempt. When I asked him for an interview, you know, it was like. <laughs> and he had bought a Steinberg's had, apartment, well, he, which was so, John so D. Schwartz, apartment. So, so 740 Park on the corner of 71st Street and Park Avenue was built on the site of the home of the Brewster family. And the Brewsters actually were a Mayflower family. Elder Brewster was the patriarch of the Plymouth Colony. And his descendants build a private house on the corner of 71st and Park, and they are convinced to sell it by the offer of the grandest duplex apartment on Park Avenue on the 15th and 16th floors of that building, which George Brewster moves into when the building is completed. $225,000 apartment, $250,000 maybe. Um, and because it opens just as the Depression begins, the co-op fails. Nobody can sell the apartments. The co-op fails. Everybody has to turn in their leases. And George Brewster dies, I am convinced, of a broken heart a few months later. John D. Rockefeller Jr. sublets the apartment from Brewster's wife, lives there forever, turns the building back into a co-op, dies. His widow lives on there for a while, sells the apartment in 1969 when they were worthless for $25,000, less than it cost in 1930, to Saul Steinberg, the green mailer. Saul Steinberg lives there until he goes bust, sells the apartment for $30 million, $30 million to Steve Schwartz. At that time, so, it was the, so the highest largest, price. Hard, highest, highest price, price ever paid for a New York yeah. co-op. So Schwartzman, is, so, you know, think about it. 
Mayflower, Rockefeller, Steinberg, Schwartzman. Very important character in my book. Doesn't want to talk to me, you know, kind of blows me off. I research him, he, and he's fascinating. And so I end the book on him. And I'm sitting at a party for Lehman Brothers, another subject of yours. And um, I'm sitting at a table, actually, with a friend of mine who's a distant relation of the Lehmans. And Steve Schwartzman walks by the table. And I looked up as he pauses, and I said, Steve, Michael Gross. And he goes, I know who you are. <laughs> and, you know, there's a quiet satisfaction in that. And, and you know, did he, was he happy? about it? No, but I also talked about the fact that he never gave, he had, at that point in 2004, he had never given away a penny. And within two or three years, he gave $100 million to the New York Public Library. And I flatter myself that I might have had something to do with that. And, and so, and how did the uh, reaction to that differ from House of Outrageous well, Fortune? So, so Bill brought up a story. Uh, I also, Got some help. I just referenced it. I did yeah, I know. bring it up. I got some help. I got some help from Bill on the 15 Central Park West book because he's the smartest journalist I know covering Wall Street because he looks at the people as well as the calculations and the money. Is that fair? That sounds so nice. It's got to you know, be right. He, he, he's, as be right. he's as interested in the people as he is in the money. And... Um, I wrote the book, and the developers, William and Arthur Zeckendorf, said to me, oh, you got to interview Dan Loeb, who owns kind of the equivalent to Schwartzman's apartment at 15 Central Park West. It's not the highest apartment, but it's one of the most expensive. you got to talk to Dan Loeb. And I knew a little bit about Dan Loeb. I knew that he was kind of a, a how to put this kindly, um, an accomplished asshole. Um, <laughs> With a big mouth, no fear. He, he sounded like a guy who people would hate, but I would find interesting. And he just wouldn't talk to me. And then at the very end, he, I, I called one more time. Come on, talk to me. And I'm put on the phone with a lawyer. And I'm told you can ask questions through the lawyer. And the first question that I asked the lawyer, the lawyer says, I want the name of the head of legal at your publisher. I'm going to have your contract canceled. You're a, horrible, you're a horrible person. How dare you ask that question? We get into a huge fight, and that's the end of the Dan Loeb conversation. And I have to admit, in that case, I redoubled my efforts, and the five pages on Dan Loeb turned into 15. Um, because I just wondered why, what... What was he so afraid of? What was going on here? And I basically, it was like, I can't afford to do anything wrong. So I went back and I started triple checking everything. And of course, at that point, you kick over a rock, you find some worms. <laughs> you kick over another rock, you find some more worms. And Dan Lowe becomes more. So now the book is coming out, and be careful what you wish for. I got it into my head that I had written a book about 15 Central Park West, and I wanted a book party in an apartment at 15 Central Park West. And there was a political columnist there who was a very kind of, you know, he was a character. And he offered me a book party. And the day that the invitations go out, I hear through the grapevine that a few people in the building are upset. And by that afternoon, I'm fielding phone calls from page six. And the next day, the banner on page six is that Dan Loeb is on a jihad against me. 
He doesn't want there to be a book party. There's going to be a book party. It's a condo, not a co-op, you know? You can't do that. Thank you, um, page six, I would yeah, have said. Yeah, well, you know, and, and, but then I actually found out that it wasn't Dan Loeb. So this made it even more interesting. There was another hedge, there were a dozen hedge fund guys, maybe more in that building. There was another hedge fund guy in another one of the most expensive apartments in that building, a, a duplex like two doors down from Lloyd Blankfein named Barry Rosenstein. No one had heard of Barry Rosenstein at that point. And I start looking into Barry Rosenstein, and Barry Rosenstein won't talk to me. And then I hear through the grapevine that he's threatened to sue the Zeckendorfs because how did I find out his name? Because he'd bought the apartment with an LLC. But 90% of the apartments at 15 Central Park West were bought with LLCs. And the first thing that I had to do was figure out who, who was behind those LLCs. How did I find out? Well, you ask people, you look at public records, you dig and you dig and you dig until you've, your fingernails are all broken and your fingertips are bleeding. And I figure I got about 80%, I broke about 80% of the LLCs. There are a couple that still bug me because I still can't figure out who owns those apartments. And one of the ones that I figured out was Barry Rosenstein. And as I'm doing this, someone tells me, oh, did you know that Barry Rosenstein's apartment has been published? And it turns out that he gave his decorator permission to run the apartment in his book. So I get the book, and there's an interview with the Rosensteins, and there's a complete description of the apartment. They're just not identified, but I know who they are. So there's this huge description of Rosenstein's apartment, including the fact that his decorator referred to him and his wife as Mr. and Mrs. Chenille. I suspect that that didn't go over well. Um, and it's, it turns out that it's Rosenstein who's declared jihad against me. He's driving the train. Dan Loeb is just along for the ride. Um, and the worst of this was that they sent lawyers' letters to the Zeckendorfs, to Brown Harris Stevens, which managed the building, and to the co-op board. And Brown Harris Stevens demanded that I write a check for $1,800 to pay for four, five off-duty New York City cops for four hours, for a, because that was the minimum, for a two-hour cocktail party to protect the residents of 15 Central Park West from the guests at my book party. So, and I was one of the guests, so, so I can see why you would want the off-duty right, cops. That's right, because you might have gone sneaking around writing another book about Wall Street yeah. and pissing off all those rich people. See, so it wasn't is. <laughs> So I just wanted to make sure that the audience understood that it wasn't uh, quite as romantic as you pointed it out initially in that, you know, there, there is often blowback in writing these books. Well, the, but the worst blowback was the Met book because the Met still considers itself to be sacrosanct and private even though it's a public institution sitting on public land supported by taxpayer money. And the Board of Trustees controls all that art, but we own it. We own that art. It's ours. And they didn't want questions being asked at well, all. And I, I wrote, you know, recently a piece in Vanity Fair I about know you the did. Met, and so I know what you're talking about. And, and Mrs. De Laurenta, in particular, took great offense. And I have to admit, in that case, you know, before when you asked me if I was fearless and I said, no, I was stupid, Okay, this was a case of extraordinary naivete on my part. I did not realize that a 98-pound socialite and her dressmaker second husband were as powerful as they were. 
Um, the editor-in-chief of the New York Review of Books, a man named Robert Silvers, requested a copy of the embargoed advance galleys of my book. Embargoed means you read it, you don't show it to anybody else, and he sent them directly to Mrs. De La Renta. When I found, when I found out that Robert Silvers had a copy of my galleys, I told my publisher we will have a lawyer's letter within a week. It only took four days. It was from Cravath, Swain, and Moore. It was 17 pages long. Henry Kissinger, at their behest, called Elizabeth Mohn, who was the owner of a German conglomerate called Bertelsmann. One of Bertelsmann's holdings is Random House in the United States. Henry Kissinger called Mrs. Mohn in Germany to rumble, you must not publish this book. Um, um, a lead item in page six was killed. The Daily News received a very strong legal letter about repeating anything that I said in that book. There was absolutely no press. My publisher went into a state of sheer panic. I was told I couldn't speak. I was literally gagged for the book came out in March. I was, I was gagged through April and May. I finally said to my publisher, I'm going off the reservation. Either you're with me or you can just consider me rogue because I'm not letting this happen. I'm not gonna let these people kill my book in its cradle. Um, I was insane. I was doing things like walking down the street sobbing. I was as, as beaten as a dog could be and then I decided to fight back and I started talking about what was going on and the book was saved not really by me but by the internet. It was saved by the Huffington Post. It was saved by uh, an internet writer named Jesse Kornbluth who has a website called headbutler.com. It was saved by a writer for, here we go again, the New York Observer who discovered, because I don't know how he found this out, um, that the book had been ordered by the New York Public Library but was not available anywhere in the New York Public Library system. And what I didn't know when that little bird told the reporter that he should look into it is what that reporter found out, which was that Annette de Laurenta, besides being the vice chairman of the Board of Trustees of the Metropolitan, was also a trustee of the New York Public Library. And her last donation had been several hundred thousand dollars for the acquisition of new books. Now, can you imagine why my book was ordered but wasn't in the system and could not be taken out from the library? Um, and I didn't know a lot of this, and that got published, and the book ended up back in the library, and by the following Christmas, I was speaking to a sold-out crowd at the library. Um, so, you know, how do you feel about that? Well, I felt stupid because I didn't realize that in this case, the rock that I kicked was a beehive and that those bees were gonna damn well sting me, and they did. And I've been paying for that book for 10 years. I think it's right there. It's called Rogue's Gallery. Um, and, and so, I have, I have a cartoon over my desk. It's a picture of a guy lying on the ground with a quill pen in his heart. And the caption says, um, oh wait, God, I wanna, I wanna get this right and I'm, I've just lost it. Um, what's the expression about words can kill you? Help me, somebody. The pen is mighty. They say the pen is mightier than the sword, period. They're wrong. <laughs> Thank you, Alexandra. So, you know, you can be hurt, and I was hurt. Um, why do I keep doing it would probably be the next question. Well, or as 
the way you go about covering the rich changed because you're now, you know, editor of this magazine, which is like a Bible. Well, that's completely different. Um, okay. So you're saying that the way you cover the rich has changed because this is completely different. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more afraid now than I was, say, eight, ten years ago. Hmm. Um, of, of, of what? Is um, there richer, richer? Well, I think that the plutocracy has become extremely emboldened in this country. Um, and um, I think you would have to, you would have to think very carefully before. Uh, did, did that just happen last November, or has that been happening? Well, uh, certainly. Because um, there are some people who would argue that it has gone on for much more than just last November. Well, yeah, I, you know, it was building, and um, no, I, I, I mean, the funny thing is, what what happened is. About a year ago, I discovered I couldn't sell another book. And that's not because people were afraid. Um, it's because publishers were afraid that they didn't know where the audience was going. They didn't know where the country was going. I was trying to sell a book last July in the middle of the presidential campaign. And I was trying to sell a book about the rich. And I discovered that there was this querulousness in the publishing community. You know, if you wrote a book that praised the rich, how would that go over? If you wrote a book that made fun of the rich, how would that go over? And publishers are very nervous people, particularly now when the book business has gone like this, when there are no more bookstores, when the entire business is controlled by one multi-billionaire, basically. Um, it's become much harder to sell a book to a publisher, and much harder for them to sell books to people, which I imagine you know as well as I do. Um, and I discovered... I think every writer knows that. I discovered that I couldn't, that I was going to have a lot of trouble selling another one of these books until the situation resolved itself, which it certainly has not done. I mean, look at Theresa May. Look at Emmanuel Macron. Look at Washington. Does anyone really know how this is going to play out? No. Anybody who claims they do, God bless them. Um, and I started thinking about writing a novel instead. And as I was writing the beginning of the novel, I got a phone call asking me if I wanted to be the editor of a magazine that's very friendly to rich people. And I thought, well, at my age, somebody's offering me a magazine. They're offering me the chance to um, you know, take on an endangered species and try and save it in this little tiny corner of the world, but it's a little tiny corner of the world that I know really well. It would be a really interesting way to use the same muscles in different ways. And it just looked like a challenge that would be fun while I waited out this period of extreme uncertainty in the book business. And also, you know, I mean, I was a magazine writer before I was a book writer. You write for Vanity Fair. He's he's the you know he's he's very modest. He writes some of the best stuff in Vanity Fair that there is. In the current issue, there's a takedown of of a certain presidential aide named Stephen Miller that I finished this afternoon, and it's amazing. The magazine business is in trouble. 
everything's in our world. What we do is in existential trouble right now. And so somebody offered me a magazine, and I thought, gee, what a nice place to hide for a year or two and figure this out. Okay, so you you know, you could be a politician because you're very good at kind of avoiding the answers <laughs> to the question. So how do, have you has the way you cover rich people changed because you're now editor of this? This is a celebrity Avenue is a celebratory magazine. It celebrates people of achievement. They the same mind that edits that wrote my books, edits this magazine. But I have to be true to the DNA of the magazine, so let me tell you a story. Thank you. In, I took over the magazine. Writers in, love stories. I took over the magazine in October, the first issue that I was mostly in charge of because my predecessor had lined up a lot of stuff, was the January Palm Beach issue. And it's all, assi and it's all assigned the last week of October including an article on how the Republicans of Palm Beach were going to deal with losing. <laughs> and comes election day, I go into the office, I deal with my stunned staff, um, I deal with my stunned me, um, and the next day I start to think, okay, what am I gonna do? And I get the writer of the, what are the Republicans gonna do now story on the phone. And we decide together that we're going to do a story on who won in Palm Beach rather than who lost in Palm Beach. And it's called The Coconut Cabinet. And, um, and now I start thinking about the Palm Beach A-List, which is an avenue running tradition. And the owner of my magazine walks into my office and he goes, you know you have to put Milani on the cover, don't you? It's the Palm Beach issue. And I gulped. And I thought about it for a few minutes, and I went into his office, and I said, okay, if I put her on the cover, we're gonna alienate half our readers. If I don't put her on the cover, we won't alienate anybody. Oh, and by the way, we promised the, the cover to Kara Ross, who is the wife of Steve Ross, who runs Related, who's one of the biggest real estate developers in America. And by the way, this magazine completely depends upon real estate advertising. Do you really want to piss off the wife of Steve Ross? And he drops that subject. But I go home that night and I think, you know, in a way, he's right. I have an issue that's coming out two weeks before Inauguration Day. It's a Palm Beach issue. That's where Trump lives. What can I do? And I came up, I lit, overnight I had an idea, I saw it full blown. I was going to put them on the A-list as the ultimate A-list people in Palm Beach, which they are, like it or not. And the illustration for the A-list was going to be Melania Trump as the Statue of Liberty, standing on the lawn of Mar-a-Lago, taller than that incredibly tall American flag. And I was going to rewrite Emma Lazarus on the base of the Statue of Liberty. And it said, um, give me your huge, your filthy rich, your tiara trophy wives yearning to breathe sea. So, what I did was not violate the DNA of Avenue Magazine and yet signal that Avenue Magazine wasn't going to be a patsy for anyone, at least while I was running it. So. 
Is that, okay. did that more thank, answer thank, the question? Thank you. Uh, now, I could ask, we didn't even get to the whole Trump questions, but we do have to turn it to the audience to see who in the audience would like to ask you some questions. So don't be shy. Ask away. And Michael, you can direct your, you know, you pick your people. Um, art is as, the art world strikes me as um, a vicious pit of reptiles, insects. Um, it, 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 it's a hornet, I, I, it, it, I don't, having done it mostly with the past, because the Metropolitan Museum is about the past, but discovered how nasty those people are I would be very reluctant to stick my hand into that world again. Having said that, uh, one of the books that, it, one of the other books that I thought about doing a year ago was Sotheby's and Christie's, because I think that there's a wonderful book there. And what I discovered was the publishers didn't want any part of that book. They thought it was too rarefied, nobody would buy it, there was no market for it. You know, that's a, if you're not a literary novelist who's basically writing for yourself, I write for people. I don't write for myself. Um, I write to inform and entertain other people. And if people don't want to read my books, I consider them, I consider myself a failure. So I want to write books that people will want to read. Um, and the art world, even more than politics, scares me. Those people are vicious. Um, I, 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 I would just add to that, because I've written a lot about art, too. I mean, there are some really interesting people in the art world, collectors now, uh, like, like the Chinese guy who bought the Mondrian, I mean, the Mondigliani for $140 million and started by driving a taxi cab. I mean, how he made his fortune, you know, is, is incredible. I mean, even just today or yesterday with Stephen Cohen buying Agnes Gunn's... Uh, uh, Lichtenstein for 140 million, so she could create a fund uh, to, to to study the question of justice in America. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff, but you know, whether you you know I you know I think the things that we write about get people, and that's why I was asking Michael about it because they get people riled up and angry, and so. Well, see, and what I would like to read is a book by Bill about Larry Gagosian. Yeah, well, Don't, he would he would probably. Try and have you trying to have me yeah killed. Well, you know, it, 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 <laughs> I mean, that's the word I think. Somebody we would be said for. somebody said to me about Oscar De La Renta. Aren't you afraid to cross the street? <laughs> you know, no. But if I was going to write about Larry Gagosian, I would be afraid to cross the street. That's, I mean, you know, that is a, that. Putting aside the fact that I never even took Art One Hundred and One, and I don't know anything about it, and I admit to the things I don't know about. Um, those people scare me. Yes? You alluded previously to the, what's going on in the magazine industry. And it's hurting. In fact, I think I read this week that Louis Vuitton is pulling out of Vogue or something, or, or Vogue is, a lot of the advertising from the print 
but you both work for Blossoms, you know, and so I'm wondering whether the journalism is going to sustain you, or do you, do you have a sense of foreboding on, on what's going to go on? I mean, I mean, Great Card is a great editor, and Value Trend is a great publication, but, you know, the, the economics have changed, obviously, so, and, and so and you joined Avenue, so the question is, are you in a safe haven now? I mean, you know, or what, what is your Well, I, I would just quickly say that I feel a little bit like a dinosaur, the last of a breed. Uh, I don't, I don't think that Vanity Fair will probably exist in its current form, you know, for another ten or fifteen years. So, uh, because that is an advertising-driven magazine, and if you're right that uh, uh, ads are being pulled, then that's a big uh, problem. On the other hand, it is one of the last places where you can write. I mean, I write long articles, five, six thousand, seven thousand word articles, and that just doesn't, does that cannot happen. That happens very, very few places. Uh, again, in, in my case, you know, I used to be a banker on Wall Street for close to 20 years. So my banking career subsidizes my writing career. Uh, and so how many people can do that? So, I mean, talk about an anachronism. Uh, I feel very, I mean, when the Huffington Post, which, you know, was very nice to you and your book, Rogue's Gallery, is not very nice to journalists generally because it doesn't pay them. And well, I, it, does I, pay, it does pay some now. It, it does pay some, but you know, there are a lot of people it doesn't pay. And so I refuse to work where uh, I, I, I don't get paid. Uh, you know, I'll write for the nation for a very small amount of money, but at least I get paid. Uh, and, and I will never write for the Huffington Post. And, you know, I think of Bill as one of the luckiest guys I know because, you know, A, he had that Wall Street career. I mean, you know, when I was writing for magazines, it was the end of the heyday. You know, th those articles that I used to write, 9,000-word articles, they could take two months. Were you there with Kosner? Yeah, I worked for Ed Kosner. I was there at the end of the glory days. And, you know, I would be flying to California to do one interview. And um, the amount of money that it cost... Because, you know, you have to hire lawyers to read every single word with a magnifying glass because you don't want to be sued. And you need these things to be bulletproof when you're working fact for a magazine checkers. like Vanity Fair. You know, layer upon layer of fact checkers. Avenue is a pipsqueak. I mean, I have a staff of three. There are four people putting out this magazine. It's a little, it's a trifle. That's all it is. And all I'm trying to do is make it an amusing trifle. On the level where I used to work and Bill works now, how will they sustain that? I mean, I'll be, I'll be optimistic, and I will say that 20 years from now, whether it's a print product or not, there will be a New York Times. There will be a Washington Post. There will be a Wall Street Journal. There will probably be a Vanity Fair in some form doing work of some similarity. But look at the New York Times right now. They just fired their entire level of copy editors. Has anybody noticed that the corrections are no longer on page three? And have you noticed that they change every single day? They're on a different page so that you can't find them? I mean, do you think that that might be what because they've taken that entire level of quality control and retired it? They're gone? I mean, you know, all of this stuff has to work itself out somehow. And people like us have to support the, the production of journalism, which is expensive. You know, if I can't sell a book, I'm not wealthy. 
I do this to I do this to pay the maintenance, thereby saying that I'm upper middle class because I'm not paying rent. Okay, I do this to pay the maintenance, and I need to make money to pay the maintenance, and these magazines need to make money, which means that they either have to have circulation revenue or advertising revenue, one or the other. And if there's no market for it, where are they going to get the money? And I've been arguing for a long time that the book business, that books are a luxury product now. Only highly educated people with a, with a very particular level of discernment are going to walk into a bookstore, look around, and pick up, you know, like I did the other day, American War by Omar al-Akkad. Right? How many people are going to buy that book? Buy, published by Alfred A. Knopf, the best that there is. But who's going to buy it? There, first of all, there are no bookstores. There are no reviewers. There's no more review medium. They, the whole infrastructure is in huge trouble. And call me a cockeyed optimist. I persist in the belief that there is a market for it and that it will survive somehow. You think I'm wrong? You're the Wall Street guy. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I think it's 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 tough. I think we've proven that people like to read books. They like to hold books in their hands, and, and they're not wedded to the, to e-books as much as people thought. Which is good for for writers because e-books cost nothing to actually make, and and writers get even less of a cut of that. Uh, but you know, figuring. I mean, we're, well, right now is particularly tough, as you were alluding to, because if it's not about Trump, I mean, what publisher wants it? It's it's very, and who wants to write about Trump? So, and, and, uh, do, you, and do you really want to be the author? You know, in in three months or six yeah. months, do you want to be the fifteenth person? You're going to be the, you're going to be the ninety third book on Trump. I don't care whether you're pro Trump or anti Trump. You know, the, but the amazing thing is, look at what's happened to the bestseller list. I, I actually looked at this last weekend. A year ago. The bestseller list was right wing book, 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 right wing. Now the bestseller list is left wing book, left because they're out of power, and they're 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 upset. And suddenly, what are they doing? They're buying books. You know, Trump has been good for the Trump has been great for the news media. People are watching television. They're subscribing to the New York Times. They're subscribing to the Washington Post. What fresh hell is this? <laughs> right. God help us. <laughs> um, one of the things I love about your book on 740 Park versus 15 Times Park West is that you really chronicle two different generations of Wall Street. Steve Schwartzman's who won't talk to you, but whether or not it's connected. But he knows who I am now. Exactly. <laughs> or the Dan Loeb's who go out of their way to destroy you. Um, in the end, do we return Let's talk about real estate instead of rich guys for a second. The reason why I wrote another apartment house book was because it was a completely different story. It was the story of these condos that cost insane amounts of money being bought by people who bear no relation to the people who live on Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue. Totally different story, totally different generation of wealth. Now, all this housing stock that is undervalued, that nobody wants. Nobody wants to live on the Upper East Side anymore. No, all those kids who grew up on Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue, they want to flee. They want to go downtown. They want to go to Williamsburg. They want to go to Borum Hill. You know, who's going to buy? Well, 
see, again, this is the cockeyed optimist part of me. I persist in believing that there's a market for quality and that eventually the pendulum will come around. So the difference between the people who live in a 740 park and the people who live in a 15 Central Park West is that people who own co-ops have a vested interest. They are stockholders in a corporation, which is in itself, in a way, a stockholder in a neighborhood, which is, in a way, a stockholder in a city. They have a civic sense of belonging, responsibility. They're a part of something. The people who buy those condos, they fly in, they fly out, they don't even live there, they use them as piggy banks. They, they are part of nothing. They are responsible to no one. I think that a balance will be restored. I mean, I bought an apartment two years ago on the, upper, on the east side because it was worthless. I got a great deal. I persist in believing that if I ever sell that apartment, it will be worth something, that somebody will finally want it. So yes, I think that just as Steve Schwartzman, who never gave anybody a penny, now writes hundred million dollar checks all the time. You know, he's grown. What I the, the last line of 740 Park is something like, because he lives in John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s old duplex, he has two very big floors to fill. A little joke on shoes to fill. And what I meant was that John D. Rockefeller Jr., having been the son of the ultimate vulture capitalist of the Industrial Revolution, became probably the most generous man in American history. Think about all the things that John D. Rockefeller Jr. paid for. And Steve Schwartzman grew into the role of at least being philanthropic. We'll see about his politics and his social conscience and all of that. That's still playing out. Will Dan Loeb? Will Dimitri Rebolovlev? Um, it's a longer shot, isn't it? So is anybody going to care about New York? Are the people who are going to care about New York going to buy those co-ops in that grand old housing stock where to be accepted, you actually have to show that you want to be part of something bigger than yourself? If you think that that's over, then we all ought to move because that's well, bad then, news. Then you've got the problem of, of say, a Bill Ackman buying the penthouse at one fifty-seven, just for ninety million before he renovates it, which is going to cost him another fifty million. That's that's a lot of money to have in that co-op and he think and condo, and he thinks he's going to make money. Uh, and he I, thought I he was going to make money in um, Herbalife and Valiant too. <laughs> How'd that was, work out for him? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely wrong. Yeah. And yet he's still uh, quite wealthy and still acting philanthropic and like he's... Let me ask you, um, back talking to your childhood, uh, I know your father was a journalist and went to... How did you find your purpose? How did you Well, question number one, my father was a sports columnist for the New York Post. Um, he did not want his son or his daughter to be writers. He wanted his daughter to go into television and he wanted his son to be a lawyer. His daughter ended up 
first a sports writer and then a writer for the New York Times. Um, uh, interestingly, the daughter ended up a sports writer. The son, who was supposed to be a lawyer, um, I started writing about rock and roll when I was in college. Um, I did it to get free records, because if you, if you wrote record reviews for your college newspaper, the record companies would send you free records. And I didn't have the money to support my vinyl habit, so it was great, because I got every record that came out free in the mail. Um, my father did see my first paid byline before he died, which I'm very proud of. Um, the moment he died, the, the law school plan went out the window, and I became a professional writer. And I've been one ever since. I don't. I would need to undergo more psychoanalysis to figure this out. But I think both my sister and I wanted to be writers. You know, we saw that my father had a, our father had a really interesting life. Um, not always easy, but a lot of fun. You know, it definitely beats working. <laughs> Um, and then you get to the point in your life where it becomes work and it becomes hard. And, you know, at that moment, I had to figure out, okay, this is a bad time to try and sell a nonfiction book about rich people. What can I do? And I saw the possibility, I hate this word, but I saw the possibility of a pivot, that I could pivot and do something else. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading right now a biography that just came out of a man named Dominic Dunn, um, who was in the movie, he was in the television business, um, and his, his life fell apart and he became a writer. And um, Dominic Dunn, Tina, Tina Brown hired him at Vanity Fair to write about crimes committed by rich people. And Tina Brown said that the great thing about Nick's career, because he, when she hired him, he was writing a novel, was that Nick could write the truth for magazines, and then he could write novels in which he told the truth. That when you're writing for a magazine and you have the lawyers and the fact checkers and the layers and layers and layers of editors that you had to go through back in the day when it was really great, um, you can't tell everything you know. You can't tell everything you suspect because the lawyers are going to get you and they're going to tell you you can't write that down. And in every story that you write, tell me if you agree with me, there's always some stuff that you hear that you can't prove, that you're sure is right, but you only have one source. Or you have two sources, but one is a little dicey and probably wouldn't show up in court if you were sued. And you can't... But there's a story there that you still want to, and that was what Tina Brown says in this book about Nick Dunn, that he was able to do two things. And I hadn't read that book, but I'd had yet, but I'd had the same thought, that there are all these stories that I've heard that I wish I could tell. And what you do is you embellish them, you embroider them, you change the names, you change the characters. You don't feel the fidelity to the specific truth, but you write for the larger truth, and that's what I thought I would try to do. Um, and I haven't given up on that yet. I mean, you know, that that beginning of a novel is still sitting there, and before too long, I'll go back to it, and I'll see whether I can get I see whether I can do this, because I've never tried. I don't know if I can, so. I was wondering, how do you source your research for wealthy people, seeing as how many of them want to be very secretive 
you start with every single word that's ever been written about them, which you know used to be harder because you had to go to libraries <laughs> and morgues and 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 archives, and now it's easier because a lot of it is on the internet. Um, my favorite thing in life used to be, every newspaper used to have a thing called a morgue. Do you all know what they are? Does anybody not know? So, okay. So, uh, the best part of writing an article was the first week or two when you got to go to the morgue and just sit and read old, crumbly, yellow old newspaper articles. It was so, it was, it, it's like being on a treasure hunt. You're, you're, pan, you're, you're sitting in a freezing cold river with your, with your butt in the, in the water with a pan, and you're panning, and, you, and it's dirt, and it's dirt, and it's dirt, and then suddenly you find a nugget of gold. And it makes you weak when you find something like that. And then you build on it. Um, the, the, the best metaphor I've ever come up with for this is you're standing in front of a brick wall, and you want to know what's on the other side. So you scratch, and 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 your fingers get bloody, and your nails break, and eventually you get a little tiny hole, and then you stick your finger in there, and you go like that, and you widen, the, and eventually a brick comes out, and you're there. And that's how you do it. It's, it, 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 it's, manual, it's basically manual labor. Um, it gets less fun when you get on the phone, because that's when people say no to you, and yell at you, and threaten to sue you, and you know, tell you that they're going to send somebody over to your house and break your ankles. That doesn't really happen very often. Um, but, but by that point, you're already, you've got, the, you've got the, the adrenaline of the chase. So that keeps you going. And meanwhile, you're putting together the puzzle, and you start to see the picture, and you want to finish it. And it just, it, it, it's very, if you have the knack for it, it's very rewarding. I can't sing, I can't write music, I can't paint, I can't draw. <laughs> I'm physically clumsy, I can't play baseball, I can't play basketball, but what I can do is find stuff out. And, and somewhere along the way, I was lucky enough to find that there was something that I could do that I was pretty good at. So, yes. Rock and roll. Well, A, I don't think it's having your finger on something. I think it's responding to something. It's it's curiosity. That's all. It's uh, you know, and and now I'm old. <laughs> Back then I was young. Um, uh, you know, at the moment I kind of think I've ended up somewhere fairly comfortable. Um, you know, at this point, I almost think if I can just get away with this for a few more years, I'll be both very lucky and very happy. And you know, the thing is, I mean, after after um, 15 Central Park West, I felt like I needed a change, so I wrote a book about fashion photography. You know, and I went back, I went 10, 15 years backwards, but all through that time, um, there was an art dealer named Holly Solomon who years and years ago befriended my wife and I and said to me, every time you finish a project, or start a project, buy a piece of art. And I started buying things from Holly, and then I found the thing that I loved to collect, which was fashion pictures. And through all those books about rich people, every time I signed a new contract, I would take a little bit of the money and I would buy a new picture. And, and you know, I needed something different to do. I was worn out. 
from writing about rich people in real estate. And I thought, you know, I was, I was sitting talking to my agent, and I told him a story about a, one of Bill's colleagues at Vanity Fair had been hired by the Richard Avedon Foundation, had been hired to write a biography of Richard Avedon by the Richard Avedon Foundation. And they were as um, manipulative and demanding and controlling as Ralph Lauren tried to be with me. And unlike me, he dropped the book. He just figured it wasn't worth it. And I was talking about this because the photographer that I have the most pictures by is Avedon. I said, you know, God, I wish I could write a book about Avedon, but they'll never let me, and they'll just make my life miserable, and I don't want to go through that. And But it's, it would be so cool, you know, because I wrote this book about models to turn the camera around, and he went, stop. That's the book. You know, the, the, sometimes stuff just happens. You're, you're waiting for a story to come along. You know, I didn't know that I wanted to write another apartment building book, but I was living on 58th Street and 7th Avenue, and there a block and a half away, this building was rising. And every day I would read in the paper about who was buying into it, and they were so different from the people on Park Avenue. And at a certain point you go, this is a good story. Maybe I could tell this one. So you don't know. You respond to what's going on around you. That's... What separates a good idea from a finished book? I mean, I imagine that... Two years of work. <laughs> Um, I abandoned the first novel that I wrote, started to write. I abandoned the second novel that I started to write. I abandoned the novel that I'm trying to write now when I discovered that there was, that there was a story with no central character, that I hadn't figured out the central character. And the reason why I started writing it again was in the middle of the night one night, I suddenly realized who the central character was. Um, so. It's very hard to walk away. You know, the great thing about nonfiction is that it's not all coming from inside your head. You just need to work hard. And, you know, I've abandoned ideas before I've sold them. I thought about years ago I wanted to write a book about Studio 54. I abandoned it at a certain point. I, I wasn't getting the cooperation I needed. I saw that it would be really hard to do without those couple of people that I really thought I needed. I walked away from it. Um, but you can probably tell I, I don't give up easy. <laughs> Did you walk away from something that wasn't yours? Oh, yeah. Well, no, my publisher walked away from me, actually. Um, back to the publishers expect you to repeat yourself after I wrote the book called Model. How was I going to repeat myself? Um, and actually, it was an agent who came up with the idea of writing a book called Starlet. And I was going to find five kids in Los Angeles and follow them for a year as they tried to become stars and write about the new star-making machine. This was in the late 90s. And I took an apartment out in LA, and I commuted back and forth, and it took a year. It was so hard because breaking past the barriers in Hollywood at that point was just, you know, talk about making your fingers bloody. My head was bloody. Um, and I finally get to the point where I have five kids. One, one was a little girl who was a waitress at the, at the, um, the bar at the Sunset Marquee. 
who lived in a guest house with a creepy old man who would crawl into the guest house and try and get into her bed at night. Another was a guy who self-produced movies so that he could star in them. Um, another was had just gotten a television series. And the third one was this young actress who had only made one movie whose name was Charlize Theron. And I feel at that point took a year and I write a proposal and I bring it back to New York and I give it to my publisher. And my publisher said, you know, I just don't feel this. And that book just blew up in my face. It's funny because I, I went looking, that's my sister, by the way, the Jane Gross of the New York Times back there. Jane Gross formerly of the New York Times. Um, I, I, that was so traumatic. I went looking for that book proposal the other day in my storage space. It's gone. And I save everything. I mean, I have my notebooks from high school. I cannot find that proposal. That must have been so traumatic that I threw it away, and I don't even remember that. Aww. That's lovely. Yeah. What do you think? Anybody? On, on that note? On that note? One more question. Although that was a nice note to end on, but. Nope, we have no more questions. Wait. Come on. There you go. I, I want to make a comment. There were a lot of, were some other programs I was going to come to. I come here all the time across other places. This is one of the best programs I've ever attended. You filled in. I didn't realize you wrote it. I read the book about the Metropolitan Museum. That was a terrific book. I and, uh, and 740 Park, I'm a sociologist, I'm a professor. I recommend that book all the time because of the social class implications. I, I, I only buy e-books. I'm going to buy the rest of your books. I hope they're on it. And I'm going to read every one. You were Thank you. That is a good note to end on. Good note to end on. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.